Hey, good morning, everybody. I'm glad you're here today. If you want to take out your worship folder, there's a place to take notes in there. There's a Connect card in there, and uh, you can drop that Connect card in the offering later. I've got some great news for you. If you haven't heard, our family minister, Aaron Jackson, and his wife, Katie, had their little baby. That's great. <laughs> Naomi Grace, she is beautiful, and I've got a picture here. Actually, <laughs> I bet Grandma and Grandpa probably have a picture or two. Donna Merlene Jackson would love to show you some pictures after church. She's a sweet little girl. She really is. Uh, if you would like to somehow help Aaron and Katie, like take a meal or do something like that, you can talk to my wife, Kirsten, or uh, Kelly Browse if she's here today. They can help you like get scheduled for taking a meal. Gift cards are always appropriate, so you can just send them something. And, um, there's that. And uh, if you did not hear that Aaron and Katie had their baby, we want to get you on the prayer list because you can find out all this stuff. If you write your email address and prayer list on the Connect card, we'll make sure you get added to that. If you don't do email and don't have email, just write print copy of the prayer list and we'll mail it to you. So there you go. It's one more way that we can show care and concern for each other is to share our prayer requests and talk to each other and talk to God about each other. So there you go. So a while back, years ago, I was out for a run and I was going past this dumpster and I heard the craziest noises coming out of the dumpster. Like, what is that? And in the middle of my run, I just had to stop and see what it was. So I go over the dumpster, I pull the lid up, and I look inside. And what I saw inside were several juvenile raccoons running around in this dumpster. And uh, they weren't quite grown up yet. They were kind of like teenage. And they, this, this, this picture here is not a picture of the raccoons I saw. I didn't have a phone or a camera with me at that time. These raccoons in the picture were stuck and starving until somebody found them and rescued them. My raccoons in the dumpster that I found, oh, they were stuck, but they weren't starving. They were ecstatic. They thought they were in heaven. This dumpster was outside of a banquet center, and as I look in there, it's like one-third full of food scraps and wine bottles and beer bottles, and they're like, can you believe all this food? Just here. You want to come in and join us? There's plenty. <laughs> I'm looking at these raccoons in the dumpster. They're just like, they're not even paying any attention to me. And I will be honest with you. I started talking to them. <laughs> I know it makes me sound crazy, but I really did. I'm like looking at them and going, guys, you need to get out of there. And they're ignoring me. They're paying absolutely no attention to the human being outside the dumpster talking to them. And like, Look, I know something you don't know. Yes, today is awesome. Amazing amounts of food. But there is a trash truck coming tomorrow. You do not want to be in here when the trash truck gets here. So I'm like trying to persuade them to get out. They're like having nothing to do with me. So I'm like, you guys don't want to get dumped. So I, I start looking around. I found a piece of scrap lumber, and I kind of put it in there at an angle. I left the lid up. I'm hoping that when the trash truck comes that they hear it in time and they can get out before they get dumped. You know, we all do what we can. Right. So I'm just thinking, like, there's this judgment coming. In this series, spoiler alert, what we've been doing is we've been reading ahead and just asking the question, what happens when you die? You know, how do we get ready for what comes next, especially if we know what's going to come next? How do we prepare for that? And what we've uncovered so far, according to looking at what the Bible says comes next, when Jesus returns to this earth a second time, there's going to be a literal resurrection. Every person who has ever lived is going to be raised to life in a real physical body to face judgment. At that point, there are going to be some destinations that people can end up in. And we understand, as we looked at last week, that one of the destinations people can end up in after the judgment is the new heaven and the new earth, the place that God is creating for us. And it's an amazing place. And as we've looked at it, we realize we've probably misunderstood what heaven's like. It's not a boring place where we're just floating around. It's actually a physical place where we'll be with real bodies and 
will it have enjoyable things to do? And so we look forward to these kinds of things. But I'm going to suggest to you, if we're going to look at the full scope of what happens after we die and we're going to plan for what's ahead, we need to take seriously what Jesus taught about the other destination. And I don't know if you realize this or not, but as Jesus taught about our eternal destiny, he spent a whole lot more time talking about hell than he did heaven. In other words, Jesus spends a whole lot more time warning us about hell than celebrating the good destination, heaven. I think that's pretty significant. And so if we're going to be fair to Jesus and fair to the Bible and just be honest and accurate, we need to talk about that today. Now, I am, uh, just full disclosure, I am not interested in being argumentative. I am not interested in being manipulative. I don't even think I could do that anyway. You guys are too smart for that. Um, I'm not going to preach a fire and brimstone sermon trying to induce terror. Uh, I want to be respectful of your intellect. And i just be honest with you on this, too. I have not been looking forward to preaching this sermon today. Like, woohoo! I get to preach on hell. Go get them, tiger. It's not like that. I'm actually pretty excited about next week's sermon. We're going to talk about the intermediate state, what's between now and when Jesus comes back. That's pretty exciting. You need to come back for that. But at the same time, I want, I want to be respectful of you, but I also have to be faithful to the message that God has given me to preach. Part of that is talking about this. Jesus talks about it so much, we need to also. So what I'm going to do, just lay it out before you. Let you form your own conclusions and alter your actions as you want to or not. But I want you to know, I've been praying that all of us would take this seriously and form our lives and our actions around the truth of this teaching that Jesus gives. So that's what we want to do here today. Let's, let's first of all, just as we consider this, let's consider the reality of hell. And I want to invite you to turn in the Bible to the Gospel of Luke. It's in the New Testament. I don't know, about two-thirds of the way through. So you can find Luke, pull it up on your smartphone. We're going to look at a story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 16. Now, some scholars call this story a parable. Have you ever heard of those before? A parable is a story that Jesus would make up to teach a spiritual truth. He would use real things out of the world, but then he was like teaching something. So it's kind of like a once upon a time, this. So some scholars say, well, this is a once upon a time kind of story that Jesus told. A lot of scholars say, I don't know that it really is a parable. This might actually be a true story that Jesus told. And they point out the fact that if, if this is a parable, it's the only time that Jesus used real people's names in a parable. Either way, I think there's something important we need to get out of this. So let's go ahead and listen to Jesus as he tells this story. So this is in Luke 16. We're going to start down in verse, uh, looks like verse 19. So he says, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen. He lived in luxury every day. And at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. He wants to eat out of the rich man's garbage. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. That's the entire extent of his medical treatment right there. Verse 22. Well, the time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side, paradise. The rich man also died and was buried. And in verse 23, in Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus at his side. And I want to hit pause here for a second because I just need to make something really clear here. This is not a story about how rich people go to hell and poor people go to heaven. That's not the point of the story. Don't get that idea. For example, when the beggar died, it says he went to paradise at whose side? Abraham's side. Abraham lived like 3,500 years ago here on earth, an incredibly wealthy man. In paradise. This is not a story about how rich people, they get what they're going to get in this life and then they go to hell. It's not that kind of a story. At the same time, this is also not a story about how you can decide 
what God thinks about a person based on their life situation. This poor beggar, his life sucked. Just be honest, it did. It was awful. You're eating out of garbage and dogs are licking your open wounds. That was no reflection of how God thought about him. Where did he end up when he died? Paradise. You cannot look at someone's life, good or bad, and say, well, your life is horrible, therefore God hates you. What did you do to deserve this? Because you obviously did something. You also can't look at someone's life and say, well, you are obviously blessed by God because you've done so well financially and everything's going amazing in your life. You, you can't judge. You can't draw a conclusion either way. Let's go ahead and go on. Verse 24. So he's in Hades, the rich man is. So he calls out to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. I just find it interesting. Even in death, the rich man thinks he's better than Lazarus. Tell him what to do. Abraham replied, Son, remember in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here and you're in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, it's all a moot point because there's this great chasm that's been fixed. And so those who want to go from here to you can't. And anyone from your side can't cross over from there to us. Well, then the rich man said, Well, I beg you then, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house. I've got five brothers. Let him warn them so that they may not also come to this place. Let's pause there for a second. I want to point something else out here. Many people have a hard time becoming a Christian because they have someone else in their life who's passed away, and as far as they know, they have never said yes to Jesus. They've never said, God, help me. They've never at once acknowledge God or ask for his forgiveness and as far as they know that relative is just gone and it feels like if they say yes to Jesus it's somehow an indictment of their relative who's passed none of us know what happens in a person's heart between them and God so none of we're not in the seat of judgment God is only he knows where people ultimately are going to end up and maybe this is your story you're like if I say yes to Jesus somehow I'm actually convicting my my relative to hell and I don't want to do that so I'm just not going to Accept this right now. I don't want to think about that. Do you notice that the story that Jesus tells, what's the rich man's one desire? Actually, he has two requests. Send Lazarus to help me. When that doesn't work, he's like, okay, send him back to warn my brothers who are still alive so they do not end up where I'm at. Let's go on down to verse 29. So Abraham says this. They've got Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. They've got the Bible. And then the rich man says, No, Father Abraham, they're not going to believe that. But if someone goes from the dead to them, they'll repent then. And Abraham said, Hey, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not even going to be convinced if someone rises from the dead. Now, remember, this is Abraham speaking in a story, but who's actually telling the story? Jesus. And Jesus is now making direct eye contact with the Jewish leaders who refuse to believe in him, the ones who have seen all the miracles and saw all the Old Testament prophecies coming to life in Jesus, and they still refuse to believe in him. And Jesus is looking right at them and says, you guys don't believe in me. You won't even believe, me, believe in me when I rise from the dead, which I'm going to do, and you will still refuse to believe in me. So that's the story that Jesus tells. And one of the things that becomes very clear here is that Jesus clearly believed in a place called Hades or hell. But that's not the only place where Jesus taught about this. Matthew 25, 46, Jesus described hell as a place of eternal punishment. You go on down to Matthew 25, 30, he says hell is a place of darkness. 
where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You ever wondered what gnashing of your teeth is? You ever just gone like, ah, I just, I was that close. It's, a, it's something you do when you deeply regret something. Like you just missed an opportunity. You could have, but you didn't. It's a weeping and gnashing of teeth. He says in Mark 9, uh, 9.48, hell is a place that's filled with worms or maggots that never die and an eternal fire that will never burn out. Horrible pictures. Most scholars agree that when Jesus talks about the fire and the flames and the darkness and the maggots, and all, that he's being symbolic. And here's one reason we think that. Like, how can you have fire and darkness at the same time? Scholars say this is probably symbolic of something, but here's the next step. The symbols are illustrating something that is far worse even than the symbols that, that represent them. When you look at hell, the reality is going to be so much worse our culture has really done a number here, and I think Satan's just lied to us. Oh, man, I, you heaven, boring. Hell, that's the place where the party's going to be. That's the party bus. Hell, that's where all my friends are going to be. Hell is the place where we're like in the corner bar drinking buds with our buds. It's not. Hell is a place that's absolutely devoid of God's presence. Therefore, it's devoid of light and hope and joy and peace and fellowship. Hell is a place that no one should ever end up it's awful beyond description, which begs the question, why would a good God create such an awful place, right? How could a good God make an awful place like this? Why is there even a hell at all? Here is the tragedy. Here is the irony of hell. People are going to end up there, but hell was never made for people at all. I'm going to go back to another story that Jesus told us, a parable. It's in Matthew chapter 25. And he says at the end of time when there's the judgment, it's going to be like a king who calls in all of his, his people. And he says it's kind of like, like this whole flock of sheep and goats comes in. Now, in my mind, when you say goat, I think billy goat. And there's obviously a difference between a sheep and a billy goat. But there are also goats that look an awful lot like sheep. And if you saw them at a distance, you'd say that's a sheep. And somebody would say, no, it's actually a goat. They're fluffy like a lamb. So this huge flock of sheep and goats, this all kind of mingled together, comes in. And the king is like a shepherd, and he starts separating them out, sheep from the goats. And the sheep go off to the right, and the goats go off to the left. And Jesus says to the ones on his right, the sheep, he says, come on, you are the blessed ones. Enter into your inheritance, a kingdom that's been prepared for you since before the world began. Then the king turns to the one on his left, the goats, and he says to them in Matthew 25, 41, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for who? Ooh. Hell was never made for people. The, the hell of the future that happens when Jesus returns was not made for people. It was made for the devil and all the angels that rebelled against God with him way back in history before we ever showed up. Hell is not for people. That's the irony of it. C.S. Lewis, the scholar, the author, says it this way. The saved go to a place prepared for them, while the damned go to a place never made for people at all. It's a future punishment for Satan. Let me just point you to a few things that haven't happened yet. They're talked about in Revelation. These are prophecies about the future. Revelation 19.20 says, The beast was captured. With it, the false prophet who had performed signs on its behalf, and with these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Revelation 20.10 
The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophets have been thrown. They will be tormented there day and night forever and ever. This is still in the future. Revelation 20, 14 and 15. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Again, I just got to ask, if people were never intended to be in hell, why do people end up there? It's an honest question. And I really don't want to justify hell today. It's not really the point of my message. I would like to point you in an intellectual direction that you can start thinking about, though. You process this on your own. I'm reminded of something the philosopher Dallas Willard would say. He said, you can't accept conditions and reject consequences. Like, what does that mean? If you're a parent, you teach this to your kids every day. You can't accept conditions and reject consequences. You don't use those words. If you've been a kid, anybody here been a kid before? (laughs) You've experienced this. How many of you, when you were a kid, tried to fly? Put your Superman cape on, and you jump off something, and how many of your parents told you not to do it, and you did it anyway, and you broke something? I had friends who, like, jump off the roof, jump off the top of the swing set, broken arm, whatever. I never did that. I went off the, um, the clothesline pole because it's not quite as tall as jumping off the garage roof. But here's the thing. Your mom's like, don't jump off that. You're going to hurt yourself. And you're like, oh, mom, you're just trying to spoil my fun. You're just trying to keep me grounded. It's like, no, you can't accept conditions and reject consequences. You jump, you are subject to something called gravity. <laughs> as much as you want to, you can't reject the consequence of jumping off the roof. You're going to hurt yourself. So let me ask you this question. If you make it abundantly clear with your words and your actions that you want to have absolutely nothing to do with God, you're exercising your free will. That is the condition that you want to accept. I don't believe in God. I don't want him in my life. I just refuse. You can't do that and then reject the consequences of that. You just can't have it both ways. Here's the thing. In this present life, everyone experiences God's presence whether or not they acknowledge him. Even the most hardcore atheist who says, I don't believe in God, there is no God, they still benefit from the presence of God whether or not they acknowledge him. Every day, God gives good things to people who love him and people who hate him, people who believe in him and people who don't. The Bible says that God lets the rain fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. It's, you do not know what it's like to live without God's presence. Even somebody who says God doesn't exist, gets the good things that God pours into the world every day. But if you say you don't want God, eventually you'll get your way. Do you know what hell is? Hell is God's ultimate tribute to your free will. You don't want God? There's a place where God is not, and that's hell. A place that's absolutely devoid of any of the good things that come from God. You can't reject God, the source of life, and, it's a, or, and at the same time say, I reject the consequences of that. You know, someone, someone once said it this way. In this present world, for a person who's trusted God, trusted Jesus, this is the closest you'll ever get to experiencing hell. At the same time, for someone who refuses to embrace God through Jesus, this world's the closest they're ever going to experience of heaven guy named Randy Alcorn, he wrote a book. I referenced it last week. Uh, he wrote a book called Heaven. It's an amazing book. He said this, Earth is that in-between world touched by both heaven and hell. Earth leads directly into heaven or directly into hell, affording a choice between the two. 
The best of life on earth is a glimpse of heaven, and the worst of life on earth is a glimpse of hell. <laughs> you know, I'm just be honest with you. This is just me, but I think it's probably you too. There's something in me that wants to push back against this, though. Like, there is something in me that just deeply wants to reject the idea that there is such a place as hell. I just don't like it. A lot of people actually go so far as to put it this way. I just refuse to believe that a loving God could send people to eternity in hell. I just don't think he would do that. People will even take the next step further and say, I just don't think there is a hell. I don't think that that's right. Other people will go another direction and say, look, if that's what God does and that's what he's like, I just refuse to believe in a God who does that. I'm just not going to believe anything. I'm not going to. I get that. It's an honestly held opinion. I think it's worth thinking about. J. Vernon McGee once bluntly said it this way. He's an ra old-time radio preacher. He said, you know, this is God's universe, and he does things his way. You may have a better way of doing things, but you don't have a universe. I mean, it's pretty blunt. Um, again, I want to go back to something Dallas Willard would say repeatedly. He would say, it's very helpful to realize the extent to which what we want to be true is controlling our ability to see what actually is true. Uh, I experience this every day, too, so I understand this. That what he's pointing out is there's something in American culture that, that we like to base our beliefs and our truth around what we like and what we want to be true. Well, this is, this is what's true for me. This is my truth. Perfect example of this, I was so happy like three, four weeks ago when a study came out and said, you know what, that whole thing we've been saying, like eggs are bad for you? Yeah, are bad. They're actually not that bad for you. It's okay. Like, which I was then rejoicing because regardless, I'm going to eat eggs. Now I just don't have to feel guilty about it. What they found was like your cholesterol level has a whole lot more to do with your genetics than it does with what you eat. So I'm like, yeah, now find me that study that says caffeine's not too bad for you either. I'm, I'm up for that because that's, that's my truth. You know, it, as Dallas Willard says, it's like what I want to be true is controlling my ability to see what actually is true. Maybe I don't like the fact that there is a hell, and I don't. Maybe I don't emotionally agree with it. Maybe you don't. But if it does exist, if judgment really is coming, if people will spend eternity somewhere, shouldn't it be the wisest thing that we do to order our life around that truth? Maybe it doesn't make sense now. Maybe it'll make sense at some point in the future. But shouldn't we start thinking like, what is actually true, not what I want to be true? One last thing I just kind of want to think about here. The Bible has a lot to say about this coming judgment in hell, but what if, we've, what if we've misheard the tone of the Bible? Like, you know how we've been told over and over and over, if you're going to send something really important, if you need to talk to somebody, don't do it in an email or a text because it's way too easy to misunderstand the tone. What if when we've been hearing the words of the Bible about hell, we've been hearing it as a threat, but it's not really a threat at all? What if it's a warning? You know, like, what if Jesus is saying, like, it's not like Jesus going, like, you are this close. You do one more thing, and I'm going to send you. That's a threat. What if Jesus is not doing that at all? What if he's like, you are on a highway to hell, and you're going straight there. Thank you, ACDC. And I love you, and I'm here to warn you that this is not going to end well for you. I am telling you about this so that you can do something about it and turn around, come to me. I came here to save you from your own actions. And, and I'm telling you this because I want to warn you because I care about you. 
And it's not because I'm trying to threaten you or scare you or manipulate you into doing into something you don't want to do. I'm telling you the truth about reality. Hell, in the Bible, it's not a threat. And I understand because it's so hard for us to hear it in the right tone because we've had so many people shoving fire and brimstone down our throat. That's not how God sounds at all. God is a loving heavenly father who is just trying to get our attention and tell us the truth. If God is truly a good heavenly father, you know what he's doing? He's like, I've been around here a whole lot longer than you have. I know how this works. I'm a whole lot wiser than you are. I am simply telling you what is already in your best interest. The best thing you can do is listen to me and turn to me and come to me. Like I am a dad. I'm looking around. Many of you guys are dads. I can't even begin to imagine condemning my own children. I, I just couldn't do that. And, and I don't know how God can do that other than I can say that somehow God has to balance love and mercy with justice and wrath. And I know how intellectually how he has to do this because he has to also respect our free will that he gave us. How can God respect your free will and at the same time make you do something you don't want to do? What's God supposed to do with people who don't want him? Drag them to heaven and chain them to the pearly gates? Really? Does that work? Will they eventually love him because of that? Would that work with your kids if they ran away? You may want to go grab your children, drag them home, and chain them in the basement until they come to their senses, but does that ever lead to love? Love's a two-way street. What would you do if your kids ran away? You might call them. They won't answer their phone, so you leave message after message after message. You might write letters and cards to them. You might call their friends and say, hey, would you talk to them on my behalf? You might send money because you know they need it. They're not going to spend it on the right thing, but you're still going to do it. God wrote us letters. He put friends in your life to talk to you on his behalf. He's, uh, he's come here himself. What more could he do? Listen to what the Bible says. 1 Peter 3.18. You know, Christ suffered for our sins for all time. He, he never sinned, but he died for us sinners to bring us safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. Man, hell exists, it does, but no one should ever end up there. God has done everything he can to make sure that not one single human being ends up there. In fact, you s- this is the only reason that Jesus has not come back yet for Judgment Day. It says in Second Peter 3, 9, the Lord's not really being slow about his promise to come back like some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed. He wants everyone to repent. I mean, really, this is in our court. It's God paid a terrible price so that we could have free will. It cost him the life of his one and only son, Jesus Christ. There's like no limit on how many people can be in heaven. It's not like, okay, we've got enough. We're going to have to somehow figure out how to weed the crowd out a little bit. Like every single person who's ever lived could be in heaven, and that's what God wants. There's no reason for anybody to end up in hell. I want you just to think about that. What do you need to do with this in your own life? Who do you love and care about that you need to be praying for and talking to and inviting Telling them, look, you've misunderstood God your whole life. He loves you. He's on your side. He wants you to be in his family. It's your choice. 
Let's pray about this. God, I'm, I'm so thankful that as a father that you love us this much. I'm, I'm a dad, and I'm not even very good at being a dad, especially compared to you, and I get this, that your heart is that everyone would come home. So please, Father, just open our hearts to say yes to you. Thank you for loving us that much that you would send your own son, Jesus Christ, to die for us, to take the wrath that our sin deserves, standing in our place, substituting himself for us. I, I'm blown away by that. Father, just I, I'm asking that you would just show us clearly through your Holy Spirit what we need to do next and that we would just be brave enough to do that, just honest enough with enough integrity to say, you know what, I need your help, God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.